0: hi and welcome to voices of esalen i'm sam stern today my guest is bob walter executive director and board president of the joseph campbell foundation bob was campbell's editor for the last 10 years of his life and the editorial director of the historical atlas of world mythology following joseph campbell's death in 1987 he served as literary executor of campbell's estate and continues to oversee the publication of joseph campbell's writings We got a chance to talk about the work and the life of a man who was a central figure in Esalen's history, as well as the Human Potential Movement. And amidst this, I got the chance to play some original Joseph Campbell clips taken from a speech he gave at the Esalen Institute on October 12, 1967, entitled Freud, Jung, and Kundalini Yoga. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Bob Walter. Bob Walter, thank you so much for joining us on Voices of Esalen. My pleasure, Sam. I have kind of a, an interesting thing, uh, an additional media piece for our interview today. I have a talk that Joseph Campbell gave in, I think, 1967 at the Esalen Institute, and I, I cut up a, a couple of clips that I thought I might intersperse into our conversation, just to spur discussion and perhaps it'll it'll provide interesting, you know, fodder for discussion, and maybe it won't. I don't know. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Okay, fantastic. Well, I, I thought it, it might be useful for you, if it was possible, to kind of give an overview for those of us who aren't as familiar with Joseph Campbell's work. If you could outline some of the, the main pieces of his philosophy and who he was.
1: Well, let, let me try to do that, but let me, uh, I know I could, I could do a full hour and a half just on that. So let, let me give you some highlights, but also put it in the context of where we are. Um Joe, uh, one of his last talks, actually, we were just listening to it the other day, was at Skowhegan, and it was um, sort of about how I became a writer. And in the early, early on in the 40s, he had been studying in Europe. He'd gone to Sylvia Beach's Shakespeare and Company bookstore, and uh, Ulysses by James Joyce had just been published and she gave him a copy and he took it away and he, he, he was completely baffled. He, he didn't know what to make of it or how to read it. And he went back to talk to Sylvia Beach and she gave him a whole other stack of books and said, well, read these and you'll be able to read that. So he dove deep into Ulysses. And then as Joyce's Finnegan's Wake was coming out, which was serialized in its initial publication, um, you know, it, 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 it was baffling to, to many, many people and he uh, struck up a friendship with uh, Henry Morton Robinson, n- known as Rondo. Rondo' had written uh, the Cardinal, um, a, a novel that was fairly big in the, in, at that time. And together they decided to write what was called a, what they called the skeleton key to Finnegan's Wake. So it began to tell you how to read uh, or or encounter this work. Now that was his first one of his first pieces. And then around that time, the Bollingen Foundation was being started now, now, Bollingen was started by um, Mary Mellon, the wife of Paul Mellon. <clears throat> and she'd been in Europe studying with Jung. And so the Bollingen Foundation initially was supposed to be set up as a sort of publishing arm to bring Jung's works to the U.S. and publish them in English. That but was parenthetically a, a, an endeavor that didn't really end until about eight years ago. I mean, uh, it, it went on and on and on and on. And, and so the Bollingen Foundation early on one of their first things was, their first book was co- called Where the Two Came to Their Father. <clears throat> and what it was, was it was a an, a Navajo uh, le- sand painting, ledge, a, a compendium of Navajo sand paintings that told this story of where the two came to their father. And Maud Oaks, the anthropologist, had interviewed a, a, a Native American elder named Jeff King, and they through these six of plates. And the plates were about the size of this table in front of us, which is like two feet by three foot. They were published in a big folio. And then there was a commentary by Joseph Campbell, which is almost a small panel. Through this time, he, he'd been working on what was known as different names at one time, it was called the History of the Gods, but it ultimately became known as The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it was published 1948-49 um, by Bollingen. And Arguably, is the single large, the most well-known of his works, and certainly the one that's had some of the largest influence. It, it was very, very popular in certain circles. Mostly, I mean, Joe lived his whole life in a two-room apartment in Greenwich Village. He traveled in it, you know, with his wife Jean Erdman, who was a dancer, with the likes of I mean, collaborated with uh, John Cage and and Merce Cunningham and Eric Hawkins and all of these, and then a lot of the Abstract Expressionists and. Uh, in fact, shortly after we started the foundation, there was a big event in Arkansas, uh, a teacher training, but also an exhibit. Um, and, and I was asked to come down and talk, and I didn't know why they wanted me to talk about the hero. It emerged that this young professor at the University of Florida had was writing a, a book called "American Ex- uh, Abstract Expressionism and the American Experience. And so he started going around to all of these different studios of these artists, and the Quickly, he noticed that every one of them had on their shelf a well-thumbed copy of The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly these seeming abstract drawings, things like Crossing the Threshold and Meeting the Goddess and these titles, you know, where did they come from? Well, they came from Hero. And so there was this art exhibit of about 40 or 50 major pieces of art. um, All with these titles, that came from The Hero. In the 60s, then... um, uh, Joe's work was was rumbling again around the uh, th- through certain circles. And so when when Dick and Dick Price and, and Michael started thinking about what they were going to do here, one of the first people they wanted to bring in almost as a consultant or bring on was was, was Joe. And so he came here and it was a funny kind of juxtaposition because uh, I mean, in one sense, human potential and, and the focus on on body work which is developed here and, and, and all of that. Well, to bring in a, a, a at that point a, a, a person who's been teaching for forty years and it's Sarah Lawrence teaching girls comparative religion and mythology and it was a bit of a stretch and I, and I and it went on for a while I mean there's stories of you know of people flocking to hear him lecture and other people coming in you know and uh, you know wanting to do yoga or wanting to move or whatever and this guy's just talking at them yeah as he was here uh, certainly in the late sixties by the time he started coming every year you know people would come up to him and say oh, you know, I'm so glad I found The Hero with a Thousand Faces because, you know, I was having this, uh, I was re- really really lost. You know, on this, I was on this altered consciousness state and, and I didn't know where I was and then somebody gave me this book and and it was kind of a guide map and, and he would say, well, I don't know anything about that uh, because he was, in one sense, pretty straight-laced and, um, you know, came here to Esalen, I think it was probably four years before he took off his tie. <coughs> um, so, uh, uh but he, he would say, I, I, I didn't know what went on in the 60s, but I knew something happened because suddenly my royalties for Hero with a Thousand Faces had an extra zero in it. And that's how he knew. Then he came into the 70s and he fell out of fashion. He still came out here. He did a West Coast tour he, in the UC, UC Extension and Esalen and so on. But he was increasingly a prophet without honor on the East Coast. Um, Paradoxically, at the same time, it was the same time that George Lucas um, w- had discovered *Hero with a Thousand Faces*, and was later to say, you know, that it's quite likely he would not have been able to write *Star Wars* if he hadn't found this book, because he wanted had this space opera in his head, um, but he didn't have a structure. and And slowly, that the the, the this the hero started popping up in, uh, particularly in in in. In cinema and and in and the emerging field of video games, um, uh, and early even early, um, uh, you know, card game role playing card games, Dungeons and Dragons, and things like this. Start uh, so there. This was all going on in the '70s, but at the same time, um, he was a prophet without honor. No one would publish him, and he'd been working on this magnus, magnum opus called the Historical Atlas of World Mythology, which was going to be one volume, and then two volumes, and then four volumes, and then four volumes in multiple parts. Well, we ended up starting a publishing company in the in the late 70s, early 80s, because no one would publish them. Um, and so we, you know, mortgaged our houses, and we started a publishing company. And we managed to bring out a hunk of the atlas, and then the publishing company published a lot of other stuff in art and photography and cultural history. But the real reason for beginning it was we had this book that we had all our livelihoods invested in that was growing and growing and growing, and we couldn't publish it. And then we determined we publish it, we couldn't get anybody to distribute it. And so this, this was the situation in, in the early to the mid-'80s. The Atlas came out, suddenly people got really interested again. Around the same time, uh, Chris Vogler, who wrote a book called The Writer's Journey, which is taking the hero's journey of Campbell and, and applying it to scripts, and so he was, Chris was a writer, at a, re, a script reader, head script reader, I think, at Universal Studios. He wrote a memo, about a 14-page memo that started circulating about how you read a script, how you look at a script, and you determine whether it's going to make a good movie. And it was somewhat, it was somewhat formulaic, like, you know, if there isn't a, you know, go about a third of the way in and read a little bet round. If you don't see a call to adventure, don't read anymore. Go two-thirds of the way in, and if you don't see a return, don't read anymore. It became a book called The Writer's Journey. And suddenly, you know, we saw this, you know, the, the this was starting to ferment, but Campbell was still, uh, you know, a really sort of flying under the radar. And then in the early 80s, uh, he had done a two-part interview with Bill Moyers on Bill Moyers Journal. And it was two part, which was unusual. This is one hour sections, but the conversation was so animated that it ended up being two sections. And, and this is, you know, um, early on we didn't have uh, any of the means of transcription we do now, you literally could write in for a transcript, and you got a booklet. And they they had ten thousand requests for transcripts, which was more than they'd had for any other person they'd had on on the show. So, as we were getting ready to launch the, the, this atlas and publish it, two things were happening. One, uh, we were in a period of time when uh, uh, Carl Sagan had Cosmos, and we had um, we started to see these media tie-ins where you'd have a book, a TV series or, you know, sort of mutual release kind of thing. And so um, uh, in in preparation for this, I, I went up to see Bill was Moyers was at CBS at the time. And I, but I went to his former producer at NPR, uh, the NPR franchise in New York. And I asked if I could borrow the tapes from these interviews, because one of the things they talked a lot about was what was in this first book we were bringing out and we were going to be launching it at the American Booksellers Association and Joe couldn't be there cuz he was here <laughs> yeah. okay he was doing his west coast tour and so uh, i thought well if i can't have him i can at least have a talking head mm-hmm. and so th- they gave me permission to edit it down to about a 10 minute loop which we did and in the course of this you know, we had our little conversation about is what's bill going to do is he going to stay at CBS is he going to come back to PBS and there's a lot of buzz about this and and the message I got was, well, the one thing he, he knows is if he comes back, he, he, won't, he doesn't want to just do talking heads again. He wants to do something that has scope and sweep. And I said, well, you know, um, Campbell's doing this historical atlas of world mythology. That's sort of got a little bit of scope and sweep. It goes from, you know, early speciation up till today, you know. And, and, and so, so then began this kind of dance with Sean for about a, a year of, um, of John Connor talking to Bill, my talking to Joe and us trying to figure out how to get them together. And so Bill was still on a contract to CBS, and so we formed a partnership. And and all we did was say, when Joe comes from Hawaii, where he'd moved to, to, to the mainland, could, why don't you guys have a conversation? And, and, uh, and uh, I called George Lucas and George said we could use Skywalker. And then the other partners brought in the equipment and stuff, and we just got them together. And they talked for a weekend. Um, and they went away, and, and uh, you know, they had a great time, and they did it again um, about a year later, and then they did it again. And then uh, um, we're now in 1987. Bill has announced, you know, that he's going to come back to, to um, PBS. He's left CBS. But again, this is there's no formal program here. This is just these guys talking. And and Joe came out, did the West Coast tour, did one more set of rounds with Bill Moyers in... in, in, in um, at the American Museum of Natural History where their very first conversations had been. And it went back to Hawaii and was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, underwent radiation treatments, and six weeks later was dead of a heart attack from the radiation. So this, it was just, um, it it just came out of the blue. And and so Bill uh, fast-tracked this material and he took the entire production fund they'd given him and he put together Uh, a six-hour program, which ended up being called Joseph Campbell and the Power of Myth with Bill Moyers, which when when it was done, nobody wanted. I mean, the first time out, you know, uh, uh, it was recounted to me that, you know, programming people at the uh, NPR affiliates were going, you have a a six hours of conversation uh, with an 80-year-old mythologist. I mean, that's really sexy TV. It's really going to help us build a young audience, isn't it? Uh, (laughs)
0: Oh. And yet, I mean, it, it seems he that he off. was an incredibly compelling speaker. Part of what you were saying was that he was, the writing was hard to publish, but it seems that from the recordings that we have and the, the popularity of him as a speaker, it was, he, he took it to a whole nother level in that respect.
1: Yeah, and, and the thing is that it's, I mean, it's, he published, you know, 20 books. I mean, it's not, but his, his, his scholarship was influenced a lot by Germanic writers. Uh-huh. And, and he was quite the writing craftsman. And so he really worked the prose, which means it got dense, and longer sentences uh-huh. and subordinate clauses. And, you know, um, that's sort of not where popular you know, writing was going, even though he was writing for a popular audience. Yeah. But as you pointed out, uh, he was a very compelling speaker because he'd spent all, those, I think, because he'd spent all those years in a classroom and he could really read his audience, sure. okay? And he could really answer what they had to say. He, he, he would respond you know, from the heart, from the soul. Yeah. Uh, and this is especially true then in the questions and answers that, that, that came along, because they would be things he, he wouldn't normally think of or be working of, and he would respond honestly. So, May I play a, oh, please. A-
2: now the great yoga that I want to speak about is the Kundalini. <laughs> This is a late form of yoga that developed probably in the Gupta period and thereafter, perhaps 5th century AD. The idea is of a coiled-up serpent power, the word kundalini means coiled up, at the base of the spine, as though the serpent were biting its tail and not outward turned. And the goal of this yoga is to wake that serpent and bring it up the spine and on the way up there are six centers through which it goes until it reaches the crown of the head so we have seven centers the base and then the six on the way up and at each stage the entire psychological structure becomes transformed
1: one of the other early things which i didn't mention um, but when he was starting out um, there was an indologist named heinrich zimmer Uh, Zimmer was the first guy to really bring Eastern thought into the West. Mm. And he came from Germany to give a series of guest lectures at Columbia. First lecture, there were like three people in the audience. Joe Campbell was one of them. And about the third or fourth lecture, um, it had grown um, in size, the number of people. And he died. He got a cold and he died. And his widow asked Joe to take a look at his notes and see what could happen. So four, five volumes Joe published uh, ostensibly Heinrich Zimmer's work, but edited by Campbell. And, and you know, and, uh, and he would talk about the fact that uh, when, when I began working with him and, you know, he would often say, do you have any questions? And I and, and frequently didn't. And he'd say, you know, when I was working with Zimmer, you know, with Zimmer's material, all I kept thinking is, I wish I could have asked him this. And he said, sometimes I did. You know, when I didn't know quite where I'm going, I asked him. I My mean, because he's dead at that point. <laughs> but but Joe said he'd always thought that you know it, it, he wished he'd had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So he was deeply steeped in Hindu Hinduism, particularly, but in Eastern traditions. And it's funny, kind of, because we're we're talking now you know, early forties. He never he, he became known as this scholar who was, you know, uh, as conversant in Eastern ma- material as anybody, and he'd never gone there. And so it wasn't until fifty-four, fifty-five he took a one year sabbatical and traveled. And he kept these journals which which we released initially as in two parts. The India journals we call was called we called Bakshish and Brahman. Yeah. Because he went there expecting to have converse philosophical conversations in India about Brahman and Enlightenment and Kundalini and so on. And all he encountered was post war. Japan and post-war India, who's, you know, the communists or the capitalists or, or who's gonna, you know, it was Bakshish, pay me, pay me, pay me, everywhere he went. And then he went to Japan, we, we termed that book uh, Saki and Satori, cause the same thing. He fell in love with Japan, but he went there thinking he's gonna explore this that whole idea of Satori. And he found that Japanese culture was really built around sake and tea ceremonies and geishas and the, you know, a very different shift. Uh, we just we just released those for the first time. We were able to put it in between one set of covers. It's a mm-hmm. mighty, mighty, mighty doorstop. But it, it's called the the, the uh, Asian Journals. So so it was years later, in other words, before he went there. And what's really phenomenal is is you see him in this book, wrestling with his philosophical perceptions that he had coming in and the reality that faces him on the ground. Yes. So he'll say things like, "This country." <laughs> There's no hope for this country if they can't do something about these damn cows. Uh,
0: but is, is part of what the power of what he did to weave together disparate strands of myth and, and compare the way that they, they are alike? It seemed like there was a, a great influence by the modernist masters like Picasso, Mann, James Joyce, uh, leading him to theorize that mythologies are manifestation of humankind's universal need to ex- to explain myth, and he's drawing from... From so many places, yeah. Not
1: necessarily humankind's need to understand myth, but they need to understand. Period. Yes. Okay. Um, who am I? Where am I? Why am I here? What's this universe about? Well, you know, what's out there? What you know? Um, all of the all of the, what we think of now of myths are are these kinds of metaphoric explanations of phenomenon that couldn't be described any other way. Um, he, he he very much. It was it was one of his, um, I think, mo- things that was most uh, most of a gift, but it was also the thing that got him most in trouble. Nowadays nowadays it's not so unusual for someone say to have a create their own field of study that brings together disparate things. It was just verboten, um, you know, e- even even as recent as the '70s and '80s and. And so he would go and over and 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 draw on anthropological evidence or archaeological evidence, and the social scientists would go, "What are you, you know, what are you doing? You're a literature professor," and then you know he would start to opine on, you know, and and, and so trace out the sources of, of Buddhism or religions and the compare, you know, and yes. the religious studies people would go, "Wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, stick with the Odyssey, stick with the Iliad, stick with the literature, okay," uh, and uh, then he would joke, you know that. Um, it's my, myth, you know, it, it, there's my faith in your mythology. So my belief system is faith. And, you know, you're, well, I mean, it's a myth. <laughs> yes. uh, but that held true um, in these disciplines, too. Um, they weren't, you know, you weren't going to hear or accept an insight that didn't come from somebody in your own field. You know, peer-reviewed journal. Right. Uh, and, and he didn't do that. He wrote for a broad audience and he, uh, and he, and he you know, drew from a lot of sources. The one thing I want to emphasize, though, because I think it's a huge misunderstanding of Campbell's work, um, we talked, just talk, touched briefly on these, these universal patterns that he was seeing and all. And that was the hero with a thousand faces, for sure. Okay. The rest of his life, the rest of his lo- was trying to explain the differences. Mm-hmm. If these things are the same, if these are universal energies that manifest in humanity through, through time and through culture, why are they different? So, you know, he wrote the four-series Mass of God, and he tried to split the material, and he talked about Occidental mythology and Oriental mythology as opposites. Um, then he talked about primitive mythology um, and creative mythology, creative mythology being the modernists, okay, what he was seeing there. And he saw ties. He saw, he, he went to the an early exhibit of Picasso in, in, in France, and, and there was also, there was these African masks, and there was this exhibit compared the masks and, and Picasso's work. So he, he was seeing these, but again, that was a, diff- a dialectic that, that he, he ex- exposed. It didn't work. I mean, so ultimately he tried a lot of different ways. In the mythic image, he tried to make distinctions based on the architecture and the image and where it appears um, and where it's the same. And, and therefore, and where is it different and why is it different? That didn't work. So I mean, the last thing he was involved on was historical atlas of world mythology. And, and there he He posited, you know, that the two things that we use as sort of metrics to comprehend the similarities and differences are historical, where the culture is in its historical development. And there's different metrics you can use for that. He used the work of Leo Frobenius. And the other side of that is is Atlas, okay? Because the one undeniable thing of, of mythologies that come down to us is an oral tradition, and it's fixed to the landscape are metaphors that draw on what's visible around you. So if you draw, you know, like all of our major, major Western religions all come out of the Middle East. They come out of a culture, a desert culture, a nomadic culture, a culture of scarcity, okay? That's going to influence the stories. You're not going to find stories about the bountiful whale and the dolphins coming and the salmon returning. Those are not stories you know from, you know, from the Sinai Desert, okay? Same thing. If you're you know, if you live on in Japan and you read these, you know, or hear these early Japanese tales, and then you live on the Pacific Coast of the United States, there's so much similar images. Mm-hmm. Okay, the, it's the dolphins and the and the salmon run and the and it's all stories that are tied to the sea and the, what the sea does. So, even though it's different parts of the world, it's it's the geography around that you'd land the myth on, and you still see it, like in the Caucasus. You know. Uh, the, the mountains. That's Grandpa in the mountains. You can sort of see the silhouette. And, oh, there's an earthquake. You know, he just turned over. You, and so the the land, not landscape, is where the, the myths got grounded. Mm. You know, that you'd take the young man out and you'd say, Well, here's the here's the tree where, and here's the stone where. And and of course, we don't have any of that right now. I mean, we're all you know, we're all in a sense nomads again. We're all hunters and gatherers. You know, on this global planet, we we we're learning to adapt a different way to ground the myths because we, we can't count on the one hand, we can't count on the landscape being the same, but on the other hand, we can't count on it being different enough. You know, I mean, Tokyo is, you know, is New York is Mexico city is Buenos Aires is okay. Um, the city is the city and, and even the, you know, uh, exurban areas tend to all sort of be the same. Um, And so the the tie to the land that used to ground the myths and ground the stories and ground our growing and our understanding is gone.
0: I want to ask you about the, the influence of Jung. I have a clip here from the same speech.
2: It is that point at the center of the turning wheel of time or the turning wheel of the universe where the opposites come together. You have what Jung calls... The coincidence of opposites here, this is a main theme in his thinking. Desire and terror or fear or aggression come to an end here. They are extinguished. And the reason they are extinguished, and this is a very important point for the whole oriental system, is that Sense of ego has been wiped out. The key activity is egolessness. What was the significance
0: of, of Jung's thought on Campbell's work?
1: I, I don't know that, that, that we know that. Because of because of his editing, The, the Portable Jung, and at a later point he entered, edited the papers from the Aaroness yearbooks, um, people assumed that there was a very close relationship. There really wasn't. I mean the hero mentions Jung, it mentions some others, but, you know, it, it, if you wanted, probably Freud is the mo- was the most dominant figure in that book. Later, um, he, he, you know, he 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 went deeper in, into Jung when he did the portable Jung, because he had to read everything that had been published and then reduce it down. But same thing happened with the papers from the Aranus yearbooks, His Aranus was a a conference, an annual conference, and sort of, in some sense, much like the physics, con- the astrophysics conference that's going on here now, where a group of people were invited to sit around this table, and, and, and they were challenged to present material that was at the edge of their discipline, that they wouldn't necessarily submit for jury, but th- where they needed to voice it, to talk about it, to get pushback on it, to you know to see the, see see what resonated with their peers and what didn't, and Joe observed and he he, he did one major paper there. Um, he was invited to deliver it called the symbol without meaning, but he was enough there and it had become enough of a presence that that um, he was asked then to to take these yearbooks. So, I mean, what that means is that each year they published in a yearbook all of the papers that were presented. They weren't widely circulated. In fact. There was some sense that, you know, there's sometimes when the person didn't really want it circulated because it was they were, you know, working the ideas out. So they thought it would be really great doing the collected works of Jung. Let's publish, you know, let's get these published too by Bollingen. But when Joe started to look at that, um, he read all the all the yearbooks and he said, This won't work. Mm. Um, he, he said, you know, this, he said, and they said, Well, what and he said, I think you can get a Said I, I could draw a number of papers around a theme, uh, like time and eternity, and he said, but they'd come from different places, Um, and so he did one volume, and then another, and then another, and then another, and he did six altogether. Um, In fact, sort of, uh, this is so we have recently. uh, consigned Joseph Campbell's um, papers and and notes and material to New York Public Library. Um, this won't be publicly announced for a couple of months yet, um, but <clears throat> one of the real treasures there is: there are all of the papers that were delivered that he read, and you can see his marginalia. So sometimes you'll see him say, "This is crap," <laughs> or, "Oh, I'd like to hear more about this," or. And he read them all in their original language. If they were French, he read them in French, and his notes are in French. And if they were in German, he read it in German, and his notes are in German. Okay. And so, from this thorough reading, he he pulled the one book, then the next, then the next. And it's also, I mean, the marginalia and stuff. This is one one of the Q and A's here at Essen. I as his later years, and I wish I could tell you exactly where. I know we, you know, it's part of. It's on one of the collected works that we're releasing. Somebody says, oh, uh, Mr. Campbell, you know, you're, you're, you're elevated thought and so enlightened. And do you have a, a meditation practice? And he said, absolutely. And they said, could you share it? And he said, certainly. I underline sentences in books. That's beautiful. And that's what he did. Yeah. And later on in the same thing, he, they said, well, <laughs> a similar question. you know. So um, do you have a special diet? And he said, I, I certainly do. Uh, it's the Glenlivet and rare roast beef. And, and then, of course, there's it's audible, <gasps> and then he goes on a little riff about you know, the, the, you know the, the carrots didn't run away from you, you didn't hear the lettuce scream, you know. And then he goes into his thing, life lives on life. Yeah. And that's the basic fact of which the, all of our struggles with mythology and all of our attempts to explain begin with an awareness of death and an awakening of awe something that knocks us, Gopsmacks us. It's so awesome. It's harder and harder to find that these days. Um, but, But without that sense of wonder and awe, you know, life becomes flat and without meaning.
2: We have arrived at the fourth chakra. It is at the level of the heart. And its name is anahata. And that freely translated, or rather amply translated, means the sound that is not made by two things hitting together. Now what would that sound be? You've all heard the Zen query. What is the sound of one hand? The sound that is not, all the sounds that we hear are made by two things striking together. My voice is the wind striking the uh, larynx chords. The sound that is not made by two things striking together is the sound of the energy of the universe out of which all things are precipitations. It is antecedent to things. And that sound, guess what? All you have to do is cover your ears and you will hear it. It's om.
0: How great was Campbell's sense of himself in, the, in terms of, was he aware that he was an important intellectual or was there, what, what would you say personally, his, his character was, a playfulness, a seriousness?
1: A deep inquisitiveness, um, a deep interest. He, he rigorously scheduled his time because he could be so easily um, enraptured by, you know, he'd go out to have a you know, with somebody maybe for lunch and ask him a bit about what they're doing. And, you know, three hours or four hours would be going by as he's just, you know, enthralled in, in, by what he's learning. Um, and, and, and it was constantly like that. Um did he have this sense? no um there was a you know there was a there was a moment and this is this is maybe a good insight into his character. um we were oh he 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 started working on this atlas in seventy five I came on in seventy eight seventy nine it's now eighty one eighty two I mean we've been working on this thing and it's grown and grown and grown, and all of our resources are in it, and um nobody's interested. We'd soldiered on, you know. Uh, he, he gave his advance back because you know, we, we did it on our own. And there was a day when I said to him, hey, you know, um, question, do not do you ever get discouraged? And he said, well, I'm human, of course I get discouraged. Well, why? And I said, well, you know, I'm pretty damn discouraged right now. And, you know, and I'm not quite sure what to do about it. And he said, well, you know, that's a human response. And he said, all I can say is that, you know, you have to tell yourself, he said, you have to keep your eye focused on the work and you have to tell yourself that if the work positively impacts one person's life it will have been worth it and that's what he did i mean he used to, over and over it's not about me it's about the work it's not about it's not autobiography it's not about me it's the work you know and and he persisted in that and the work was not just his own the the work was this humankind's one great story so almost anything that came at him he, he would find it would it would resonate with some part of this i mean when in his journals when he's like 25 and 30 he talks about wanting to create an outline of everything that would contain play-doh and toothbrushes you know so he's he's look it's sort of almost like a glass bead game he's a bit of Hesse there just you know everything does relate to everything else so how do i put it together and and and, and that's also why why this work continued to expand yeah you know it, it, it grew because the world is constantly expanding and no matter how you try to compartmentalize it, it, it wants to grow on you. And so uh, he, he, his focus was on the work and on, and, you know, he, all those years at Sarah Lawrence, he used to say, I, ha- I learned early on that it was my job to, to help these young women see how these things are important in their lives. It's not just an academic exercise. If, if, if it, they don't see the importance of it in their own life, then I failed.
0: With the people who come to your workshop that you that you lead, what is the attraction of Campbell's philosophy? What are they finding uh, useful
1: and and relevant in it? Well, that's a bit of a loaded question because it's between what they think they're going to find and what they actually get. Okay? okay, so
0: let's start with what what do they think they're coming for?
1: Um, I think they think they're coming for a couple of things. I think they're coming first of all to be in uh, to to have the experience of being with people who have some understanding of the things that that matter to them, um, you know, was we had these sort of introductions this morning. You know, lots of people talk about the hero with a thousand faces, how it helped them psychologically, or their filmmakers and how they came upon it, or their artists, or so so they they most, but not all. I mean, we get a, always get a few who. Who, who, who will confess midweek when we give them the opportunity that, you know, I didn't know a thing about Joseph Campbell when I came here. You know, I just knew I had to pick a workshop if I wanted to come and this seemed the least threatening. Um, so I think they think they're coming uh, in part to have high-level intellectual conversations and they certainly do in the dining room, not in the workshop session. Um, you know, it, it, it's experiential. And what I'm trying to do with the workshop is pro- give them an opportunity to experience in their own lives how they make and live into their own myths, their own truths. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of um, – in, 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 so it's mythogenesis. But, but that also means that, you know, you have to demythologize certain things um, in order to make space for other things
0: to have that import. What does it mean to demythologize?
1: Well, for example, you know, mythology on and, and some other level is this multi-level belief system into which you've, you're, you've grown. Uh, it's a little harder for us to see that now, but imagine for a minute you lived in the Renaissance or you lived in an Amazonian tribe. Um, everything you did, everything you heard, everything you said, um, all your ceremonies, all your stories... Everything reflected one big story that everybody out there bought into, okay? We all grow up with remnants of those. Campbell calls it a terminal moraine of mythic symbols, fragments fragments of mythic symbols and images that once gave rise to whole civilizations. Most or many of us are born into traditions, even if it's not religious, it's secular. You know, the myth of ex- American exceptionalism, or uh, you, know, you, you can run down any of these belief systems that that we have picked up along the way, or, or this idea of, of what success actually means. Um, there, there comes a point where we all sort of look at these things and we have to make a distinction between what we really truly do believe because that's our experience and what we have been told we believe because that's someone else's experience, which they have generally provided us with the best of intentions. You know, This is how they get through the dark night of the soul. If it doesn't work for us, we have to demythologize it. We can't get rid of it, but we have to be able to say, you know, I understand where that came from, you know, and, and that's a really wonderful idea that my, my, my father had. Um, and I understand why my mom said that. But in my life, here's what I'm seeing, okay? So I'm demythologizing the stories and the narratives that I have come up with in order to be, have the space to create my own story.
0: What was it that it, it, it seemed like it became a tradition for Campbell to celebrate his birthday at Esalen towards the end of his life, or what was the birthday celebration like?
1: It was different. it was always different, but those last ten years he was he was doing that week with uh, Al Wang Sun Liang Al Wang. <clears throat> so that's a great example because in the beginning, there were the Wong Kai Chi groupies and there were the campbell groupies and and um Joe would lecture and all the Tai Chi people get up and leave the room. And then Al would get everybody on their feet and then all the people who, who were there to hear Campbell lecture either would just sit there or they'd leave the room. And uh, I guess, as it's been told to me, after a couple of years, um, <clears throat> they started doing little things to try to figure out. So Joe would start a lecture and say, oh, you know, Al, you've heard this five times. You give the lecture. Yeah. And then he'd say, oh, you know, Joe, we're going to dance Shiva. Show us how to dance Shiva. So again, this conscious attempt And this is another really good, I mean, the more I've, you know, done workshops and things and so on, I I become really, really uh, conscious of the people who play well with others and the ones who don't, you know. And um, I love it when I can get collaborators um, who are going to juice me in a way that, you know, I wouldn't. Um, and, and, And a lot of Joe's stuff here at Essendon over the years, he would team up with people. And so we have these wonderful you know, colloquies between between different folks. And you can see if you listen to any of those tapes, and a bunch of which are here, um, a lot of which are in our archive as well, you, you, you hear, you get a sense of his curiosity. You get a sense of how he picks up things that someone else has given him and how he gives something back. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and it doesn't always work like that. Um, and, you know, uh, but... You know, if you, if, you, if you set that out as what your goal is, kind of, I mean, we were kind of talking about it coming up here. You know, it's it's a thing that I think is great about Esalen and a thing that's so easily overlooked. I mean, I've always, you know, and Brother David was here. He came in every Thursday. You know, I, I loved to go out and get, you know, I'll get Danny B to come in at one point and, and talk about the history and talk about the, you know, that's what you can do here. And, and, and it happens no matter how you do it. I mean, I've got people in my group this year from, from, um, uh, all from Latin America, from Brazil, from Argentina, from Japan, from the UK, and people who like grew up in Seattle and then moved to Japan and um, from all over. And, uh, and when this starts to unfold and you start to, you know, and then, uh, then then this sort of um, interaction starts to happen where, and it, it does, you know, it, it's just in my case, just, I, I just try to trigger it in, in the session and hope it will spill out to the, to, you know, to the rest of the time there. Um, because where else do you have that opportunity? You no, know, we don't. You know, we just don't out in there, in that
2: world. Here's a wonderful meditation. Go someplace where there's a good echo and you're quite alone. And shout some of the worst things at yourself. Call yourself everything terrible. And you'll respond as it comes back, you think, saying things like that about me. And just then you will realize that all talk is just echo like that and no more important than that.
1: You must've spent the afternoon with Fritz. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> what do you think,
0: uh, as we kind of bring this towards a, a, an ending place, what do you think is a, a good way for people who are curious about Campbell but don't have that much knowledge about him to explore his, his work?
1: There's a a few points of entry, immediate entry into the material. um, I often advise people to take a look at the book called Myths to Live By, which are a series of chapters, um, uh, several of them drawn from uh, early lectures in the 60s here, and also drawn from these lectures he did at Cooper Union uh, one hour. these, These clips and things you're playing, I think it's interesting to note. Joe did not use notes. What you are hearing is him speaking extemporaneously. When he did these lectures at Cooper Union, they were to be one hour long. They are, you know, the tapes are fifty-nine thirty, fifty-nine oh two. I mean and 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 they don't seem truncated, you know, he so Mr. Libby he touches on a whole range in the historical development to the relationship between mythology and psychology, between schizophrenia and and uh and mysticism, um, the spacewalk. uh, So it really gives a sweep of a lot of his ideas. Any of his lectures, his lectures are very accessible. I mean, the the foundation has, what we did is we had about, after we died, we gathered about 1,400 discrete lectures. Some of them were so old, they were on wire spools. And some were on a reel-to-reel where we could go one time through the tape head and then we had emulsion and that was it. and so we, we digitized for years and we've released over the years now. we're, we're, we're coming up uh, on uh, 80, uh, 80 discrete lectures. So we we, we did series one, uh, which were um, what we considered the best of his lectures from the 60s and into the 70s. and they're ga- they they're in volumes, so they're themed. Um, there'd be five lectures in each volume. And then series two, well, one one volume in Series 2 has 11 in it, and one has six, but mostly it's five. And those are the middle years, and we're now into Series 3, which, which includes the later years, um, late 70s and early 80s. Um, you can go on the website, Joseph Campbell website, uh, foundation website, jcf.org, and you can see them all. You can sample an individual lecture. Um, eventually, when we finish Series 3, we'll be putting... All of the stuff we have up on, online, even though some of it is the audio quality is not so great. And in others, you know, there's uh, a better example of him talking on that. But if somebody really wants to to do it, that's one. And another way into it, I think, is in this funny kind of way is, is third party. Um, what we'll be showing tonight, for example, in my workshop, a film called Finding Joe, which was made by a filmmaker named Pat Solomon. Now, Pat's taken Joe's work and he's done this documentary uh, and we'll also be showing something called Mythic Journeys from an event that, uh, of his centenary. Um, so these are people who are, you know, these are examples of people who are working with Campbell's work, but it's very transparent. I mean, you know, Campbell's quoted all over the place and you can see what it is, but it gives you a framework to go into it. Or, you know, even even if you're to read... Um, you know, some, some of the things like manuals on screenwriting and things like this, if that's your passion. You're going to find Campbell all over this. Or gaming, good golly, you know. I was on a panel with uh, myself and, and eight guys who, who between them had like 350 years of video game design. And to a person, they all said, oh yeah, we all use the Hero's Journey. I mean, we don't follow it. Wow. It's not like a map because, you know, um, but we start out, we know this. And he said, and we go with our story and then we hit a, a place where we're kind of don't know which way to go. And he said, then we'll drag out the hero's journey again. And we'll take a look and we'll go, Oh, here's where we are. Well, this might be the way to do it. So, it, you know, you, you can see it. Or, you know, I mean, look, at look up. when Power of Myth aired, there was no place, um, myth, myth was a subset of things. So the third week of, of Power of Myth airing in New York, Barnes and Noble bookstore on Broadway had dragged out an eight foot table, hand lettered sign, myth. And they put all manner of stuff on there, anything they could think. Now, if you go into one of the remaining bookstores, you'll see a, a whole subject of myth. Yeah. You now can go places and actually get a degree in myth. And, and we're responsible for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you you now, you know, you can't turn on the television without seeing, you know, a Marvel Super Agents or, uh, you know, Percy Jackson and the lightning guy, you know, Percy Jackson and... Uh, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere now, um, uh, you know, and some of it is really rich and, and nuanced and some of it's, you know, appropriate for, for, for the audience it's aimed at. Um, but this is another way in, because if you start to look at this stuff, then when you start to pick up, if you pick up The Hero with a Thousand Faces or you pick up one of the, George Miller or George Lucas or um, uh, Richard Adams or someone like that talking about the impact of Campbell on their work, you suddenly can see it because you've seen the example of it. It's not theoretical anymore. So uh, th- those are the ways in. I think eventually, if, 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 you, if you get your toe in the water, you're going to want to um, read The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And as many people in, in our workshop have said, you know, it, it, it may sit on your shelf for 10 years unread or you may read one, 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 one chapter and then go, oh my God, you know, and not pick it up again for another one. Or sometimes you'll sit down and you read it all the way through and you'll realize you think you got half of it and you'll read it again. Um, but I think that's, that's certainly a piece that should be read, but it's not necessarily the, the easiest first point of entry for people. It's, it's certainly the most famous. I mean, Time Magazine calls it one of the 100 most influential books of the 20th century. You know, 50, almost 50 years after it was written, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. It's now in 27 languages and several million copies and around the world. So it's had a huge impact. And watch, if you can get your hands on The Power of Myth, Joseph Campbell and The Power of Myth, you'll be enthralled. Um, you know, a lot, an awful lot of people. That's why it's, that program is the most successful PBS show ever. It's raised more money for PBS than any other show they've had, up, at least up until Ken Burns. Um, mm-hmm. and, it, and, you know, it, it, um, it's truly impacted a whole lot of people's lives. Uh, and you really get a sense of Joe um, as I, as I knew and loved him. I mean, very much there, very much immediately engaged with Bill. It's very much a conversation. Um, you, you, it, 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 you can see the dynamic and you can see the man in action. So I think that's also a great place of entry.
0: Bob Walter, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, Sam, it's been my pleasure. It's uh, always great to be here at Esalen and be in a place where you can have these kind of conversations.
0: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Laurie Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to rate us and write a review. You can also find all of our episodes at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well.